joined now by Stephen Brandt, who's the author of Boca Juniors, a history and appreciation of Buenos Aires' most successful team. And Stephen's also got a new book coming out on the mighty Flamengo side from, is it based around the 1981 team, Stephen, or is it going to just be about Flamengo and a general history? Well, the the the, the basis of it is that 1981 team because when I started it out, it was I I had no idea why we loved Zico so much. Yet there was not much on Flamengo because that's one of the most famous and best best supported teams in Brazil. So I centered it on that originally, then expanded it. Because when I originally turned in the manuscript before Christmas, they said it wasn't long enough. And so I just, I overshot my goal. They said, oh, get it up by 10,000. I got it up by 30,000. So <laughs> I it's like, more. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, what I do is I, um, I start out, Basically, because I have one of my degrees is in um, history. So it's kind of why when you look at the Boca book, there's a lot of stuff in there about it, too, is that I wanted to start out and assume that not many people have read about Brazil outside of Pele, Zico, you know, some of the Sambo like teams. So I took it all the way back to when the when the Portuguese came over. And we're we're colonizing and then step it slowly through there, how the split between Fluminense and Flamengo happened, the connections to England. I mean, there, I tried to, I figured, okay, there's only one connection between Liverpool and, well, two technically because the 2019 game of Flamengo and Liverpool. (laughs) <laughs> there wasn't. There was a. There was a former player back in the twenties, Harvey um, Welfare, that who came over and helped set up Flamenco and a lot of other things. So I kind of step it through as we get to eighty one, and then eighty one happens, and it's a big chapter. And then I kind of step it back down to the end. And when I was finishing writing this, we had just come out of lockdown from COVID. So it was, I had to put that part in because there's so many books out there that have talked about football and the lockdown. I'm like, nobody's talking about what happened in Brazil where they've really just started getting back together with fans in the stadiums. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's um, that, that Flamengo-Liverpool game, uh, you know, just from all reports and if you watch the highlights and, you know, I've read... Craig Johnston's book, Walk Alone, which is an incredible read if you haven't read it, the Australian footballer who mm-hmm. played for Liverpool at the time. Um, he talks about that Flamengo-Liverpool game and talked about how they'd arrived there, you know, a little jet-lagged and a little underprepared and I guess not not in a sense of arrogance, but they thought, you know, we've got this one in the bag. Um, and he says in his book that they were handed a football lesson, in particular by Zico. Um, exactly. Yeah. A lot of them, a lot of them say that because I am a Liverpool fan. So I've read a lot of those books from that generation. And I mean, I've read both of 
I think Kenny has like two or three out. And he has said the same thing. The genesis of that with at least the Dominion teams, the UK, Wales, Scotland, Australia, is that the um, Intercontinental Cup, Club World Cup, whatever iteration it is, has always been looked down upon in that era for the for the Europeans. The Europeans. Many times, many, many times, the European um, champion would not go. The second one would go down. I mean, um, Nottingham Forest refused, I think, once and did did finally go on their second one. But that's because of all the junk in the 60s with when um, the Independiente team, the, the Racing team that basically murdered, <laughs> basically murdered the AC Milan guys out on the yeah. field there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's and, and it's so important. Well, I, su- I suppose it still is, but during the late seventies, early eighties, it was such a huge, huge uh, trophy and such a, a prestigious title and honor for the South American teams. Um, and that that yeah, particular game, what... that particular game, like if you watch, I've sort of just seen extended highlights and highlights on on YouTube, and Zico is just on another planet there. That first pass for that goal. Um, it's so beautiful. It almost looks like it's in slow motion, you know, and the Liverpool defenders are like, yep, I've got this. I can clear this. And yeah, it's incredible. Absolutely incredible. He, he was such a special player. Why do you think it was, what do you think? Well, do you think he he's overlooked Zico when, you know, we talk about the greats? Yeah. Because if you, if you think about it at that generation, so there are very few until you get to 81, that hadn't come over. I mean, Pe- Pele's always the outlier in all this because Santos toured the world. They were yes, always out right, there. Really. They were the Harlem there are, of football. Yeah, there are very few players that were just born, set, and were in in that era. And this is before Spain 82, where, I mean, that Brazil team, that's a brilliant book by um, Stuart Horsfield, which I – up and down, put in the book. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. Is no, nobody really had seen Zico. So and then it's like when you actually talk to some people about like Alberto Spencer down in Penarol in the 60s, no one knows of him, but mm. he's one of the best. That, I mean, Pele thought very highly. Mm. That's the thing is no one knew. So, and Flamenco really had never done those year overseas tours. I mean, they'd gone. Sometimes, but that was pre-Zico. I mean, they did open up. They did do a tournament at the camp now against Brunley of all teams. And they did get to play Napoli once in the, I think it was in the 70s. This is before, this was like before their, when they were real good before they got, well, before Maradona was born, basically. (laughs) Yeah, he's, it's, incredible like he's like just looking at some of his numbers and you know he he was only a what was he five foot eight five foot nine um essentially playing you know he was wearing the number 10 but almost playing as a striker i guess like his first spell at flamengo was 12 i think from memory i think i wrote it down 12 or 13 years 212 appearances 123 goals and then of course he makes the the move to udinese in italy 
Um, so he had two seasons there, 39 games, 22 goals. Now, the, he scored 19 goals in the first season. He was one shy of the leading goal scorer, which was uh, Michel Platini for the Capo Capanieri. And he had that partnership with Franco Corsio, an Italian, Italian striker. Um, his time in Udinese, his first season, it, like that, tra- sorry, his first season after that transfer, it was such a mental thing for him. There, there wasn't a lot there, even like Socrates, when he made the move across to Florence, it wasn't, it wasn't the normal thing to do. And, he, and he, you know, if you read Andrew Downey's book, Andrew Downey who wrote the Socrates book, talks about how he struggled in, in Florence, you know, being that far away from home. Zico's first season, he thrived. The second season, you know, injuries, suspensions. Um, he was openly criticising the board in, in, in Italy or in Udinese for, you know, not meet, matching or meeting his ambitions. Um, do you think he, by him going back to Flamengo uh, cemented his legacy even further in Brazil? Or do you think that he should have stuck it out and stayed in Italy? Or, or do you think that potentially if he moved to Spain or, or England, he would have been even more renowned and held up in even higher esteem? Well, but you've got to think about what that time is for England. That's 82, 83, 84. That's a different game than it is now. And and I don't buy the height of anybody when you, they list him because I, I worked, I've worked in sports. I know how much the game goes up. He would have been just eaten alive yeah. with some of those. I mean, <laughs> Vinnie Jones would have murdered him at yeah, least that, once or yeah. twice on the field. And, and um. Because he was linked with, he like should. Said, he was linked with Milan and Juventus and a few other teams. So I, I always think if he potentially would have stayed in Italy, but yeah, who knows? Well, he had to come back because of taxes. So that was okay. he came back of taxes and to get to get in a good frame for the next World Cup. He probably should have stayed in Europe. To be honest with you, because. He comes back to Flamenco, and a couple of years later, not too much later, um, as gets the knee injuries that basically ends him right there. I mean, I put it in. I I write it in the book. That's one of the most. That's one of the biggest uh, problems toward in the late '80s is Zico's knee injuries. Is he had to leave? He had to go to a lesser lesser league that's why he went over to the orient and that's why he's still there in japan i mean mm-hmm. he he's come back a couple times he he was part of the board once in about five six years ago but it's a different time he should have stayed mm-hmm. that's one of those that if if barcelona had had their head on straight before Cruyff got there that would have been smarter to have him come in or i mean he's not quite he would never have gone to real madrid because of the um because of all of the um oh where i put it nicely where where do you because of the king and all that he he would have had to go somewhere he would have done well if he had gone to like real sociedad okay or something like that a small type of provincial club yep but i mean which is like he, he did so well in Udine in Italy. You know, he wasn't quite quite the, um, you know, he's not in Rome or Turin or Milan, but he gets yeah. to shine, you know. And in that that era in Italy, 83, 84, every team 
had a you know a massive import and a huge player and the league was so strong but to do what he did like 19 goals in his first season and we're talking about a, a five foot eight striker would you class him as a striker you know he wore the number 10 he would he's kind of messy kind of yeah. Lionel Messi is I mean it's not really positionless at that time I mean you could move him because yeah. you forget it that he had some really great players in front of him with Flamenco, I mean, Nunes scored a lot of the goals in that 81, 81 season that got him all the trophies. So he could sit back there and play the 10. But the difference between Europe 10 and South America 10 is completely different. 10 for um, Amer- for um, Europe is the midfield. Mm. Is yeah. more or less... And I know it, it doesn't really fit this way, is Maradona. I mean, and Maradona is even smaller. But um, the 10 in Brazil is the best player on the team, regardless. I mean, um, Pele had it on him. I think Rivellino had it when he, would, when he was down there. It's just their star player for the team. And they, they, they still stick to the jersey, the jersey and position things down there, like – like them, like they still have, they still will put people in the eight. I think Ronaldinho, when he went down there for that year, year and a half, when he was with Flamenco, that's where they, I think they put him in in the 10 shirt. Yeah, because they, that actually, it's funny you're talking about shirt. That if you look at the highlights on YouTube again of that Flamengo Liverpool game, that jersey, it's such a simple and classic jersey that, you know, the white body with the black and red sleeves. Um, and they've got the names and the numbers, which I don't, I don't remember seeing, you know, just looking at old videos and stuff. I don't remember seeing a lot of teams with names and numbers, whether they were just put on specifically for that and for the larger audience, so they could understand, you know, who's who. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like they still, I've, I've heard like Tim Vickery and the likes talk about how the Flamengo fans still sing about that particular game, that Club World Cup final and about how much it means to them, how they still sing about it and how they were so prepared before the game where they had scouting had been done. They had VHS videotapes sent to them, you know, by one of the coaches. Um, they were ready to go, you know, and they were, they, were, they were essentially that team was in the prime and the form of its life. Yeah, and what was funny is that what Brazil hasn't really changed as far as what they do with their um, managers. I mean, you see, it's like every week you'll see another manager go in there. That 81 team for Flamengo had three managers. And the one that actually took them over the end line was was their captain who had just literally retired and walked off the field and was done. He had he was about to go into something else, and the club said, huh, we need you. We need you to coach us for the rest of it for a bit. And he he turned that into three different spell. I think it's three or four because he, he came back again in 2015, but that's 40 years later. So hmm. they were pretty much a young side and were – they weren't really broken up for much later. I mean, Zico was really about the first to go, and then they all started to move. But they had grown it from the youth up, and it was that's just what they that, that's just what they did. They would not have big players come in. I mean, Lev Yashin came in in the I think the '60s and. 
played some friendlies and there were some of the Hungarian guys that would come in every so often and play a friendly or two, because that's real. You want to be, you want to be in real. Mm-hmm. So it all progressed up through the grades, you know, playing together. Yeah. A few of them. Yeah. Yeah. There's a story on the, the general and ultra website written by Ian such called Udinese's little Brazilian. And it's about his time in Udine and about, like the protests before he arrives in Italy, uh, you know, against the transfer and, and how it was such a massive thing for Udine to attract him there. Um, but funnily enough, it talks about his final game in his second season where Udinese has a, uh, a two-all draw with Napoli. So it's, and, but it's built off prior to that as Zico versus Maradona. That's the, you know, the, the last, day, last day of the season. Um, and Maradona scores what looks like and I think is a, a handball, much like his, his handball goal he scores in the 86 World Cup. And Zico confronts him and, and says to him, you know, you need to go to the referee and admit what you've done wrong. Um, is he still, he comes across as a, a man of principles and a man of honour, I guess. Um, is he still held in that regard in Brazil like that? Is he still very well respected in and around the game? Like I know there's, ex-professionals who who aren't held as in held in high esteem after they retire um but what's his legacy in brazil like i know in italy his legacy for me and just from what i've read is of somebody who came did so well and then before you know it he was gone again whereas in you know you know it's it's openly known as cool as socrates looked in his purple fiorentina kit he struggled there. He was running around on one leg. He had, you know, so many off-field issues. But for Udinese and Zico, it's remembered as, you know, a shining light. Um, what, what's his legacy in Brazil now and what's his legacy in, in Flamengo? He's held to a very high standard. One of the things people doesn't realize is Zico is a manager. Zico has, um, I think, his UEFA A or whatever world A. So he's he's coached around the world. Mm. The one place he won't come to, and it's it's known among Flamengo fans, is he won't come back mm. to do that. He won't tarnish his image of doing because he he can he can't walk around without being without being mobbed by fans, and he, he loves doing that. Like he he's been on the board as like a technical manager or like a technical director a little bit. And if he said in the, the rumor I've heard is he didn't really like how the board was. So he left, he refuses to show back up because I mean, of what he's done and a number of the players off of that 81 team have come back in and managed a couple times. I mean, junior came back at least four times and i think he's got at least one title on him yeah but um he's one of the many that of that generation now you got to keep in mind brazil's different it's kind of like italy is that you have so many great players that you have to you have to for a specific generation Thank them. I mean, look at Italy. I mean, you've got you've got many goalkeepers. It's the same thing with Brazil, even with Flamenco. I mean, Babeto went through Brazil, through Flamenco. Romario was there a couple times. Adriano was there. Run, uh, 
Ronaldinho was there. They never were able to get a hold of real Ronaldo. Um, one that was at um, Madrid. The original but, Yeah, or as I call him the real Ronaldo. Yeah. Just because I mean, I have no problem with Cristiano whatsoever. I the later part of his career, I do. I don't like players just standing on a line and not defending. Hmm. But I came through. I. My first games watching here in the States are Ronaldo's um, 90, oh, what's my first, 98 World Cup. So it's mm. that um, he's he's going to be very well thought of till the end. I mean, I mean, his mm. his his sons never really played. His brother was a manager for but his father was a manager at one of the youth teams uh, Zico was at. So, I mean, they're very well mm thought of i mean a lot of the players unless if you tote a different line than what is being spoken you're thought of very highly i mean mm-hmm. as long as you don't touch as long as you don't go for like presidencies or anything like that like romario is in is a minister in the government right now but he's romario so i mean not many are going to touch him and those ones that stay out are pretty well thought of. Mm, yeah. Yeah, he's... I remember he won the Asian Cup with Japan in 2004. Now, I believe he's mm-hmm. still the... Well, I think he's, from just looking it up previously, prior to, to jumping on here, he's still the technical director with Kashima Antlers. Um, but I know he won the league league and cup double in Turkey. He won the league and cup double, this is as a manager, in Uzbekistan, and he won the um, cup double in Russia. So he's had limited success around, well, that's, you know, he's had real success around the Asian Confederation. And when he first made that move to Japan, like I even remember reading about that here in Australia at the time as to like what a, a huge move it was. It was, yeah, it was an outlier. That's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. But you're, so you so this book in about the Flamengo side, so when's it due out for it's going to be out it's going to be out sometime 2023 i'm betting about summer that point because i've just put the um i've done all the final touches at least on my side the getting the pictures uh writing and everything and now it's i'm with pitch publishing on this one and they're just phenomenal with everything they do do some great (laughs) and that's what the public sees the the behind the scenes stuff is better to be honest with you it i i tell people that if you have a book in you because i think anybody who's written has a book in them i mean i have seven more planned out on my book on my um computer right now (laughs) put put it out to pitch publishing because they're about the they're the nicest i've dealt with oh that's awesome with this and I deal with them on a couple sides. I mean, I, I review books for them too. So, I mean, I get, it's always fun to get s- s- football books for basically free. Yeah. So, yeah. so do you have any of your favorite Italian books in football when it comes to football? Oh, uh, the oh, there's a bunch of them that mm-hmm. the, the, um, the one Arrigo Saki just put out or that was just translated out. Yep. I've read that one. It's good. That's a good one because the problem is, and I do eventually want to do a, 
I'm kind of balancing between two in Syria uh, that, that have to be, is that there's not much really for, um, at least that I can get to for AC Milan. There's a lot to read on Juventus and that um, the one that was written about four years ago by um, Adam Digby is brilliant. Yep. Is that, um, I was going to say, oh, John, one, is it John Foote or Joe Foote? Uh, John Foot, yeah. So there's Joe McInnes. Yeah, you're talking about the mirror. Yeah, John, yeah that one's another. Yeah, so yeah. that and one's then, good, and I didn't realize how good that one was until I'm reading at the end. And Carlo Cudicini's in it. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, I've read that one twice. And then there's yeah. um, John Foot's Calcio, which is just like that's the book. Um, that's mm-hmm. held on a. Uh, that's yeah, for me, that's that's on the pedestal. Um, and then you've got Tim Parks, a season with Verona. Have you read that one? Oh, yeah, I read that one yeah, years that's fantastic ago. Fantastic. Well. Um, Gianluca yeah. Viali's books, The Italian Job with Gab Marcotti. That's a really good read if you haven't read that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it blew my mind when I went to Italy for the first time. I like because I've got, you know, stacks and stacks of books, yours included, your Boca Juniors book, and a stack from Pitchside, which is, you know, I'm always happy to keep when they when they bring out a new release. A lot of them, it's straight away, you know, pre order. Here they hit straight away as we go. But, um, I know, like the first time I went to Italy, and I went into the first bookshop in Milan, and my just my head exploded at the amount of football books available, and what was just I just couldn't believe it. And I just in my mind, I was just like, "That needs to be in English. That needs to be in English. That needs to be in English." Yeah, <laughs> like you talk about Juventus, you know, there's a Herbie Sykes um, book as well. Uh, Paul Gretsch has got a fantastic book on a manager. Uh, Carlo Carcano from memory. I'm just trying to think after I'll look it up. Um, it's uh, it's yeah, an amazing, amazing story. The it's called The Forgotten Genius of Italian Football about oh, nice. uh, a Juventus manager in the 30s, mm. 1930s, and um, essentially, like he was way ahead of his time in terms of players' psychology. He won the league five times, five consecutive seasons. And then mm, nice. it was added to the coaching staff and the, the Italian uh, World Cup campaign in 1934, which they won. And he was so well respected by the players and he was such a you know, tactical visionary, et cetera, et cetera. And then just overnight, he was just unceremoniously sacked by Juventus. Um, it's never, it was never covered in the media. Um, it was never spoken about. There, and there's a lot of innuendo and a lot of sort of, you know, shadowy figures as to why he was sacked but it's never really come out if you get a chance to read that that's a, a really good one but yeah I, you're right you know you've got your Ibrahimovic books um you know Marco Van Basten's books just been uh translated yeah. as well but in terms of like history for AC Milan no there isn't you know there's not a lot of and, and there's certain, there's, there is a lot of books in Italian and there's the you know the yeah. player books like Rud Hullet covers it in his in his book um but there's not, you know, a, an extensive coverage, much like you're writing about Flamengo here. Yeah, that that's the thing with me because I've always thought that there's really about three English-wise you have to do in um, Italy. One is you've got to do that because I think I've seen it, but the Sampdoria one mm-hmm. of, that, of that era where they were really good, that would have to be because – that that jersey is is classic, right? <laughs> it's an iconic there. jersey, and, isn't it? Yeah, 
and the players that ran through that team in the eight, late eighties, I mean, you had, you had, um, Graham Sonis who just, he had a trouble with all the Brazilians and the other one, and it would be, it would be a bestseller right off the bat is the Parma team in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Putting that thing in English would be amazing because yeah, there's so many players that come off that team. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a um, story on the website, the gentleman ultra nine years in a day. And it's the story of Sampdoria's Scudetto season. Oh no, Bill mm-hmm. wrote it. Yeah. That's really good. Like it's a really good in-depth, um, you know, deep dive on that, on that season in particular. Um, but yeah, that jersey, you know, you've got the the white, red, black stripes. Um, it just, yeah, it just stands out, doesn't it? And so iconic. Yeah, and that, I mean that's how that's how I build those type of books. Is that I will go and read something online, and just go from there. Where you just like, okay, I could drop this here, drop this here, because it's it's fortunate of my time, and I just turned forty three. Is that in the states we really didn't have much outside of a game a month up until um, Beckham came here. Mm. So a lot of the deep writing that I had to do in my generation of following this is I had to write it first. Now with like the gentleman ultra game of the people, these football times, um, there's a lot of big stuff out there that people are writing that are getting into this stuff that we don't know of. Mm. Yeah, that's right. It's like what you're saying before about, Liverpool not knowing, you know, not knowing it as much about Zika, you know, as they do. Like, it's like me as a kid, I'm the same age. And, um, you know, that, that was half the fun of the World Cup. You could, you know, you found new players, new teams that you had absolutely no idea about. Um, aside from going through, you know, the old editions of World Soccer, I used to look through all the league tables and who was who, but they were just names. I didn't know, yeah. you know, who... who, who you know, you can't put a, a face to a name, but nowadays it's just what you name the league and you can find it, you know, streaming somewhere or on a platform somewhere and you can find out so much information about any any league, really. There's no more secrets, is there? Yeah, and it's so easy nowadays to watch everything. And I know it's different for me in the States than it is for overseas because I can literally on my phone and on my computer watch pretty much everything on an illegal stream or an app of everything minus um, England, everything. And that was, that was the problem with the lockdown for me is that nothing was on <laughs> Yeah, because I'm so used to on the weekends having to get up early because the three o'clock games for three o'clock games are like morning for us. Yep. So I would, and like I have my um, co-host on my pod is out in um, Seattle. So when he watches European games, that's 4.30 in the morning for him. Yeah, that's like us. We get the... So it, that's why I'm never a fan of daylight saving because the games always kick up at 2 o'clock, you know, 2 a.m. and 4.30 a.m. You get the occasional midnight game. But yeah, once daylight savings ends, it, I used to always frustrate me when I was younger because daylight saving would end. And... Australian time, you get it, you know, the kickoffs, the early Sunday kickoffs at 8.30 p.m. But by the time daylight saving finishes, there's only like one or two weeks of the season left to go. So you you, you miss your window. But to us, it's it, it'd be strange not to wake up. You know, I remember going when I went to Europe the first time. It felt really weird for me to watch a football game at, you know, eight o'clock at night. 
an Italian game. Mm. I, I was like, this feels bizarre to me. It, like it should be four thirty a.m. <laughs> you know, there yeah, should be exactly. coffee. On, there should be coffee on. I should have my alarm set and be calling my dad to wake him up, and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sport for choice now. Yeah. So your first book, the Boca Juniors book, I know it primarily focuses on the history of the side, but there has been a lot of Argentinians involved with that club who have travelled through Italy. What do you think makes, you know, obviously the language and the, the heritage and that culture, but what do you think makes Italy so attractive to Argentinian footballs, footballers? Because to be honest, and you've been, you've been in been in Italy, and I haven't been there since the late '90s, is that it's pretty much for most of the year the same type of climate, and you have you have you have great stadiums there. I mean, just with Boca Juniors alone, you have you have um, Maradona who came through there twice actually mm. um and i re- and you've got a lot of players that have come through and you know and they're and the roots of boca juniors is genoa yep yep is so port, i mean is, well is that a ports like it's a, a port city genoa mm-hmm. as you know and um i know i know boca because is boca the you know, the wealthy, the establishment, or Boca's the working class? I can't remember now. Bo- Boca's, Boca's the working class. Yeah, that's right. One of the two. Because you can really see it by who they have brought brought through. Yeah. I mean, Carlos Tevez is the key key to all of that. I mean, you look at him. I mean, he's got, he's got a scar across his head from when <laughs> he went and chased some kids after his brother. Um, Maradona's from dirt poor um you got Raquel May who's the king of Boca Boca yeah Raquel May and the fact that he's back is great that he's one of the um vice presidents but I mean he doesn't even smile or do anything (laughs) there I mean there's and he's one he's one of the few greats that there isn't anything written on him yeah, that's right. That's yeah, he's spot on there. Yeah. Did you were yeah. you able to work with the clubs, like you know, with the Boca book and even with this Flamengo? Were the clubs open um, or approachable, you know, to get to get research? Not really. No? Yeah, you had to do it all yourself. Not really. Not really. Um Boca is a little bit easier to deal with because um they have they call them consulates, but they're really supporters group, official supporters groups in the big cities. Yeah, like the capital so the world. Yeah, yeah, more or less, but it's more like a government setup, which is kind of weird. <laughs> um, so they're kind of easy to deal with, and since I'm on the East Coast, I can call, I can call them in like um, they had an office in Miami when I was first doing this. Um, Flamenco is known for not really dealing well with the English speakers. That sounds like, the Italian, sounds like the Italian clubs. They're like they're a bit like that too. Yeah. They're still behind the times when it comes to you know images, commercialization, and you know making themselves available on all so forms of social media. And you know if you try to email for tickets, it's a, normally a response back in Italian. <laughs> it's not yeah. the greatest, Which, most approachable uh, league in the world. Which is funny is one, one of the one of the real 
kickups for this is there's a guy named Marcelo that runs one of the flamenco and history um, Twitter accounts online. He doesn't live too far. He lives down in New Jersey. He had the handle flamenco in English for the longest time. Wow. He had to put, and he had to get rid of it after a while because flamenco realized, wait a minute. And now they're coming. They are slowly here in the States, which is, which is really dumb for them because I know from being a um, U17 coach, the, t- the world clubs that are actually here, Santos has been in the States for years. Corinthians is here and Botafogo just got bought by an American. So, I mean, it's like, come on. <laughs> and there's there, and there really isn't anything in English on flamenco, no podcast, no blogs, no nothing. Yeah. Yeah. At all. Now, Boca was a little bit easier because, um, there was a guy in, um, New Jersey in, I think he's in Staten Island now. I don't know where Gabriel is. Um, that started up a podcast as I was doing this. So I could bounce things off of him on this, but that's about it. I mean, really the lack of South America English stuff is shocking mm. to me. And I'm, and I'm not only saying for just the States, for the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. So taking it back to Zico, just one quick question before we wrap it up, because I know, you know, we've got other things to do, I guess. We could talk football mm. for hours. Uh, 31st of May, 1976, the Yale Bowl, Italy versus Argentina. I'm guessing that you weren't there, given that your age. <laughs> nope. No. <laughs> I was My saying, parents weren't even married in 76. <laughs> that, would have been, that would have been nice to have been there. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. All right. So is there anything you'd like to... Um, plug or talk about before we go? No, I hope you guys keep doing so. You guys, at least the Gentleman Ultra is a great form of media out there because there, there's all the podcasts for, I think, pretty much all of Syria. Uh, I mean, I know there's like 20, yes, at least for AC Milan, and there's, an, there's a great inter one that I, um, that I listen to, and there's another 30 for Juventus, but you keep the keep the writing going and hopefully we'll get more good stuff out here. Now I'm going to have to try to figure out an um, Italian way to work into the next three books. So, well, <laughs> yeah, well, there's one of the ones that's coming up will one of the co- ones coming up has somewhat of one. And I'm going to have to talk to John Solano on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Plenty of, uh, plenty of Italian stories and, and characters in football to talk about that's for sure endless support. oh yes yeah well thanks for your time Stephen. much appreciated all the best with yeah the no problem when it comes out and yeah take care stay safe <laughs>